so for the next half an hour or so, I'm going to talk through a case of septic shock. Um, I've tried to pick, quite, not the easiest case, try to pick a case that's a little bit complex, but has quite a few learning points in it. Uh, and also a case that I think terrifies a lot of us, meningococcal septicemia. So we've got a case of a one-year-old girl, previously fit and well, uh, no medical problems, vaccinations all up to date, no drugs or allergies that she has, and quite a short history of being unwell. Unwell for about 12 hours, pyrexia, flu-like symptoms. Mum notes a rash, does the glass test, which is positive, so an ambulance is called and just taken to the emergency department. Um, so this is her initial assessment on arrival in the emergency department. So her airway is patent. Um, she has tachypneic with a rate of 55 per minute, but her chest is clear and she's saturated 100% on the non-rebreather that you put her on. Um, she's tachycardic 198, cap refill centrally is prolonged at six seconds and markedly hypotensive 55 over 28. Her peripheries are cool all the way up to her trunk and her peripheral pulses are impalpable. You can just about feel the central pulses. She's only responsive to voice, pupils are equal and reactive, and her blood sugar is up a little bit in keeping with a stress response. Parexic are 39.2, and you can actually see the puparic rash spreading in front of you. So I'm going to work through this case. Um, unfortunately, I would, I would like to have made it a bit more interactive, but with such a big audience, it's difficult to do that. I'm going to refer to two main guidelines as we go through that. So there's the Meningitis Research Foundation guideline, which was last updated in 2015. I think this is a great guideline for the first hour of management of these kids. And the second one is the one we have mentioned already, the American College of Critical Care Medicine guideline, a little bit more recent, 2017. Um, this is much more useful, I think, outside that first hour when you're trying to work out what ways of active drugs to put your child on or where your child's not responding to the first line treatment. And over those two years, there has been a few changes. We've already talked about one of them with the adrenaline replacing dopamine as the recommended drug. And I'll try and point these out as we come to them. So the first bit of the initial management of this child, I think, is to call for help. Um, this is a really sick child. The, the hypotension tells you this child is peri-arrest. This isn't a child that is going to respond to a fluid bolus, I think. Anyone with any experience here is going to be able to tell that. You're going to be going down the intensive care route. So you're going to want consultants involved right from the start. So consultant in emergency medicine, paediatrics, and either anaesthetics or intensive care all involved looking after this child. You're going to need at least two forms of access. And as we've already discussed, the timescale of treating this child is quite tight. So you need these access really now or within the next minute. This isn't one where you can have a poke about for five or 10 minutes because in 15 minutes, you need your fluid boluses in and be thinking about vasoactive drugs. And hopefully the picture of the child I've painted to you doesn't have brilliant veins. Um, peripheral access is going to, probably going to be tricky. So I think have a quick look. If there looks to be a good vein that you can go for, by all means, give it a go. But if there's not, I would get straight on and put an IO in and get on with the resuscitation of this child. Um, Anne's going to go over IO insertion over lunchtime for those of you not so familiar with it. But it's really simple to do and it's a quick route into the central circulation. The other thing that might be worth doing if you have the skills is an external jugular line and that's probably what I would go for. Um, while all the other veins are quite collapsed down, it's often distended. So left side of the neck if you can, leave the right side free for the central line. Um, and you can get a nice big cannula into that. You can get all your bloods taken off 
and then you have a nice line for starting your vasoactive drugs later on. Um, bloods wise, it's easy in Northern Ireland, we have meningococcal packs, they have all the bloods in it that you're going to need to send, so you just hand your syringe over to somebody, they'll put it into all the bottles and forms and get it sent off to the lab. Um, one other thing that is worth mentioning, the standard thing in that pack is just a group and save, it's not a group and crosswatch. I think if you have a child as sick as this, it's pretty obvious you're going to need to give them blood products uh, within probably in the first hour. So I would cross-match the products at this stage if you have a patient who's that sick, because otherwise if you wait till you get your blood results back, you know they're going to be abnormal, you know you're going to need to give them products, and then it's just more of a delay. You're going to want to get 20 mils per kilo of fluid in over 5 to 10 minutes. And again, we've discussed giving less fluid, more frequent reassessment is definitely becoming more trendy in paediatrics. I think this is one of the situations where that is wrong. Um, this child is probably grossly depleted in fluid. Um, it's too much messing about to give a little bit, reassess a little bit more. I think starting off anyway, in the early resuscitation of this child, 20 mils per kilo is probably the right amount. You, you probably, as things go on, you may want to step that down and go 10 mils, 5 mils a time later on. But in the initial resuscitation, 20 mils per kilo would be what I would recommend and what is backed up by the guidelines. And then you need to get some early appropriate antibiotics into this child. Guidelines say ketraxone or cafetaxin. Um, and if you're in Northern Ireland, I can almost guarantee you're going to get ketraxone. We absolutely love this. And this often confuses me in this situation is why people go for that. Ketraxone is a great drug. It's once a day, very convenient, and eradicates the nasal carriage of the meningococcus. So great from that point of view, but it does have some disadvantages. One, it needs to be given over half an hour by infusion. You've just worked so hard to get your access and do you really want to tie one of those up for half an hour with an infusion when you can give cafetaxin as a push? And also while your cafetaxin is running, you can't give the patient calcium even via a different line. There's risk of precipitation. So a lot of these kids, you're going to give them calcium over the first half an hour. So Cavotaxim just makes sense to me in this situation for your first bolus of antibiotics. Six hours later, when the child's in the ICU, all their lines in, by all means, switch it over to Cavotaxim for the convenience and to kill off the nasal meningococcus. And then following this, you're going to want to reassess your patient. So we'll have a look at them. In the meantime, your initial blood gases come back, and it's not great. Um, child's acidotic, pH is 7.18. Um, it's okay from a respiratory point of view, so it's mostly metabolic. Um, and when we look at the base X, it's minus 12. Most of that is coming from lactate, which is all the way up at 9.8. Off note, our calcium is also low on the gas. So after our first 20 mils per kilo of fluid, we'll go ahead and reassess the patient. <coughs> and things really haven't improved. Cap refill still six seconds, still tachycardic, still dangerously hypotensive. So the patient's given another 20 mils per kilo of fluid over the next five minutes, given some antibiotics and given some calcium. So after 40 mils per kilo of fluid, patient's reassessed again and really things are unchanged. So at this stage, you've really got fluid refractory shock. And according to the guidelines, there's three things you need to do. One, you need to give them more fluid. Two, you need to either start peripheral or interosseous vasoactive drugs. And three, you need to semi-electively intubate and ventilate the patient. Now, importantly, that's semi-electively. You don't rush in to intubate the patient at this stage because it's really important you properly resuscitate the cardiovascular system before you do. 
if you try and intubate the patient in this state, there's a really good chance they'll rest on you. There's a good chance the child is sick will unrest in induction anyway, but there's a few things you can do to try and prevent that. It doesn't mean you ignore the RON breathing. You can see here a child being prepared for intubation. They're, got a, they're get, getting some PEEP applied with a T-piece. They're being pre-oxygenated and plans for intubation are going on in the background. Um, it's already been highlighted that adrenaline is the drug of choice for this situation. Um, the Meningitis Research Foundations will still recommend dopamine. I think they will change with the next revision. And I think most of us have been using adrenaline anyway outside the, the guidelines. Certainly the only thing I ever do with dopamine is stop it. Um, Stuart has told you how to make up the adrenaline, so I'm not going to run through that again. It's a milligram of adrenaline, 50 mils of saline. It's an every resuscitation trolley, so it's, you can get your hands on it quickly, and it's easy to run. You can do the calculation in your head, so 0.3 times the patient's weight. 3 kilo child, 0.9 mils an hour. 10 kilo child, 3 mils an hour. That gives you 0.1 mics per kilo per minute, and then you can titrate it from there. One of the commonest mistakes I see with people starting adrenaline or any visoactive drug is they forget about their dead space. So you need to know the dead space of the stuff you use in your hospital. Um, this cannula has a dead space of 0.1 mils, the little connector on the end, 0.3 mils. So you've got 0.4 mils of dead space to get through before your adrenaline hits the patient. Talking about that three kilo baby where you're running at 0.9 mils an hour, that's 27 minutes after you start your adrenaline, your patient will first get it. That's too long. So if you know your dead space, you can bolus those 0.4 mils. Your adrenaline reaches your patient straight away. Um, so what I find a lot of people do is they'll start this, go on ahead and intubate their patient and the patient hasn't even seen the adrenaline. And then they're surprised when they deteriorate. So work out the dead space of the stuff you're using in your hospital. Push dose adrenaline against Stuart's covered making this up. Um, I've learned from experience you need both for these kids. Um, thinking you're going to be able to time to turn the pump up or just give a little bolus out of the pump. Um, I've got my fingers burnt trying to do that, so I now have pushed us adrenaline made up as well for all these intubations. And then you need to brief your team um, about the high risk of this child arresting on induction. When you're intubating one of these children, everybody's looking at you when you're putting the tube in, hoping you get it in quickly because they realise just how sick the child is. But actually putting the tube in isn't the hard bit, it's normally straightforward. It's making sure the child doesn't arrest while the intubation's been done, that's the hard bit. So the team leader needs to be standing back, looking after the hemodynamics, while somebody else is looking after the airway. So in the absence of an art line, you're gonna need your blood pressure cuff cycling pretty regularly. But that in itself isn't enough because the blood pressure's not gonna pick up, it's gonna cycle again. And by the time it does that, the child will have arrested. So what I would recommend you do is you have somebody with a finger on a central pulse armed with a syringe of push dose adrenaline. Have them empowered that if that pulse starts to weaken during induction, they give a bolus of push dose adrenaline. Make sure they're aware of what they need to give in advance. And it's probably your best way of outside having an arterial line, which you won't have in most of these patients, keeping them stable during induction. When it comes on to what drugs you're gonna give, um, propofol, thio, midazolam, not good choices for this patient. Unfortunately, in this situation, there is no such thing as a cardiostable induction agent. Ketamine is highly likely still to make this patient's blood pressure drop. So you're going to have to give less ketamine. 
like I say, for, we've discussed the dose of ketamine for most ICU patients is one to two milligrams per kilogram. This patient who's markedly hypotensive and peri-arrest, I would give them 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. And I guarantee you they'll go out like a light um, on this dose. I wouldn't worry about them being awake with it. You'll see them go straight out and their blood pressure will fall pretty quickly straight after. Um, muscle relaxant wise, you've got a choice of rock or sucks. The only two that are quick enough for a modified RSI. Um, I don't want the bradycardia, so I would give rock and actually having the patient paralyzed for a while after is an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Atropine is one of the new things from the American College of Critical Care Medicine guideline. Um, they recommend prophylactic atropine um, in all patients you're intubating with septic shock. And that wouldn't be something I would normally do. Certainly any septic neonate, I would give them prophylactic atropine. Um, I know a lot of my colleagues wouldn't necessarily. They would have it prepared and give it in advance, but a septic neonate, I would. Or somebody who's already showing signs of bradycardia. Um, but they're recommending it for everyone. So just to highlight that as a change. Um, we've already covered cuff tubes for everybody, but this is one situation where we would want a cuff tube. You don't want to have to go back and change this and on cuff tube because of leak. And this patient is going to swell up. They're going to need high pressures. So please put a cuff tube in at the start. Please don't put nasal tubes into these kids. Um, they're likely to be coagulopathic. Um, they're likely to bleed everywhere if you put a tube down their nose. And also, it's not as if you don't have a lot of other things to be doing. So leave the oral tube, get on with all the other things, and don't worry about swapping it over to nasal. So going back to our patient then, so we give them another 20 mils per kilo of fluid. We start some of peripheral adrenaline at 0.1 mics per kilo per minute and titrate it up to 0.3 mics per kilo per minute. That has some improvements on things. So the heart rate comes down to 170, blood pressure up a little bit to 66, 34, and capillary fill to five seconds centrally. We do a modified RSI with ketamine, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and rock a milligram per kilogram. But it's as well we had the push dose adrenaline sitting to hand because the patient needs three boluses of that during induction, and the adrenaline infusion turned up to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. So like everything, there's lots of reassessments. So following intubation, we go back and reassess the patient. So we've got a three and a half cuff tube, good position on x-ray. Standards starting settings on the ventilator, and they're actually working pretty well from a respiratory point of view. Although we're still acidotic, it's none of it's respiratory. It's all metabolic. Uh, lactates make it up most of it. Hemoglobin has dropped down from the last gas, not surprising, 60 mils per kilo of fluid given. Child circulating volume is 80 mils per kilo. And despite a bolus of calcium, the calcium is low again. So we get a central line, art line, inserted under ultrasound guidance. And ultrasound is great for this. You can't feel any of the peripheral pulses, but you put the probe on and you can see them all. And again, Stuart's going to run through ultrasound guided vascular access um, over lunchtime if you're interested in learning to do that. The adrenaline's double pumped over to the central line, but the kid's still tachycardic still hypotensive, still got a poor capillary full time, still cold, um, central venous pressure and they <coughs> first put the line in six. Venous sats are markedly low at 34 and the lactate hasn't cleared. It's up at 11.8. So we put on the standard doses of sedation, morphine and midaz. Pupils are fine uh, and sugar remains slightly on the high side. Bloods wise, so they've now come back. Um, Hemoglobin a little bit low. White cells are up and platelets are low. We're coagulopathic and calcium's a bit low and the CRP's up as you'd expect. So not, nothing that we weren't expecting, which is why I say 
send the, send the cross match at the start because you know this is going to come back like this. Put on standard fluids, two thirds of maintenance um, and bladders catheterized. NG tube in, put on the free drainage. Antibiotics given, all the blood sent off. So at this stage we want to have a look and see how we're getting on with this patient. Um, and we can compare that to what the guidance is saying we should be aiming for with our patient. So normalization of heart rates, no we haven't achieved that. Um, central venous pressure greater than 8, no we haven't achieved that. Normal BP from age, we're far away from that. Lactate clearance, no it hasn't budged. Venous sats greater than 70, nope. Capri full less than 2 seconds centrally, no. Normal pulse volume with no difference between peripheral and central circulation, no. Warm peripheries, no. And urine output greater than one per kilo per hour. Well, the catheter's only just gone in, but there's not a lot of urine in the bag. So you can see we're, we're not doing great with this patient. Um, so we need to have a look and see why. The, the, the lactate not clearing and the venous stats saying low tell us there's a problem with oxygen delivery and extraction. So we've tried to do everything we can to reduce extraction. Um, putting the patient on the ventilator, means the ventilator can then be doing the work of the muscles of respiration. Um, the child going to sleep reduces their metabolic demand and trying to control that parexia again will reduce the demand for oxygen. But we're still not delivering enough oxygen to the tissues to meet the metabolic demand and that's really what shock is. It's inability to get enough oxygen to the tissues to meet their demand. So there's a really complex formula there. Um, the anaesthetists will all know this. Everybody else, don't worry, you don't need to learn it. You only need to learn these three variables, which are actually important. So hemoglobin, SATs, and cardiac output are what determine delivery of oxygen to the tissue. So ignore this big complex formula. For most stable, critically ill children, we'll use 70 as a transfusion trigger. Um, but if you've got a patient who's not delivering oxygen, we would like to keep the hemoglobin above 100. It makes more sense if you're Hemoglobin is what carries the oxygen to the tissue. If you have more hemoglobin molecules, you can carry more oxygen. So we could top our patient up and improve our oxygen delivery. Sats, our sats are 100 on a minimum amount of oxygen. So there's nothing more we can do with that. And this would be one of the situations I talked about. Most patients, 88 to 92. This is a patient where I'm quite happy to have the sats up at 100. We're struggling to deliver oxygen. It makes sense to have all the hemoglobins going out 100% saturated. And then cardiac output. So chances are this is the main problem we have is the cardiac output. So we need to go on and look at that in a little bit more detail. So when I look at cardiac output, I like to think of it almost like a heat in our plumbing system. So you've got a tank, um, you need to decide, do you need to put more fluid into the tank? You've got a pump, do you need to do something to make the pump beat a bit more effectively? And you've got pipes, do you need to either dilate the pipes or constrict the pipes? So looking on at the fluid question, and that's something that's come up already because we know excessive fluid is associated with increased mortality. By the time you've given your child 60 mils per kilo, you should have filled the compartments up with fluid. But you've got leaky capillaries, it's gonna to continue to leak out. So there's four things I look at when trying to decide if I'm gonna give the child more fluid or not. Um, each of them has their own advantages and disadvantages. There's lots of stipulations for using each of them. I don't have time to go into all that today. And I would never use any one of them in isolation. So CVP, um, sorry, I shone the laser at you. CVP, we're hoping to have it above eight. So eight to 12 for a ventilated patient. Our line's in a good position. We're not using high pressures. So a CVP of six probably would indicate we could give some more fluid. Um, 
Valerie talked about a swing on an arterial line, so this is exactly what you're looking for. You can see the height goes up and down with respiration. So this is quite a significant swing, so if you're seeing that, probably indicates you need some more fluid. We've talked about POCUS. Um, less useful in a ventilated patient. This is a normal patient. This is the IVC of our patient, so you can see basically the walls are touching. So again, probably needs some more fluid. Um, the other thing you can do, we talked about passive leg raising our liver pressure. It's a great way to give a fluid bolus without actually doing it. So if you raise the foot of the bed, you apply pressure over the liver, you're putting more fluid into the central compartment. And then you can see what effect that fluid has. If you like the effect, by all means, give some fluid. If you don't like the effect, don't give some fluid. So what would I like to see if I give fluid? I'd like to see the heart rate come down, the blood pressure come up, and minimal change in the CVP. So we do that in our patients, and that's exactly what happens. If, for example, there was no change in the blood pressure or heart rate, and the CVP, which is already high, went off exponentially, I would probably tell you more fluid is not a good idea. And again, we know the complications of increased fluid, so you can, a way you can avoid it. Going on to look at function. It's really just eyeballing the function, I think, on echo, and I'd be fairly happy with that on the 0.5 mics per kilo of adrenaline. And afterload, again, there's all complex methods of cardiac output monitoring, but probably your, your best guide to whether you need to do anything with the afterload is the pulse pressure. If there's a wide gap between your systolic and diastolic pressure, you probably need to squeeze a little bit. Um, that patient might have, quite unusual in kids, see a bit of sort of flash cap refill time, warm peripheries, bounding pulses, your classic warm shock patient. If your pulse pressure is really, really narrow, the gap between systolic and diastolic pressure, you've got a patient who's in palpable peripheral pulses, cool peripheries, they may need slightly dilated. So that's probably your best guide rather than cardiac output monitoring, because that's, I doubt that's going to be available to you in the district general, in the emergency department. And then you need to put your patient into one of these three categories. Um, and this is where the American College of Critical Care Medicine guidelines, I think, are quite helpful um, when things aren't going well. So you've got normal blood pressure or cold shock. I would add high blood pressure and cold shock to that as well. Low blood pressure and cold shock are low blood pressure and warm shock. So I think it's fairly clear our patient fits into this middle category. Um, and the guidance would say we should start some noradrenaline in this case. So we'll go back and look at our patient. Um, we're, we're pretty sure they need some more fluid, so it's great we've cross-matched blood products for them. So rather than giving them more fluid that's cold, <coughs> acidotic, and potentially going to make the coagulopathy and dilute the hemoglobin further, we can actually give them something useful. So they're given some blood products. Started on NORAD initially at 0.1 mics per kilo per minute and titrated all the way up to 0.6 mics per kilo per minute. Um, but unfortunately, there's no improvement in the hemodynamics. So when your vasoactive drugs aren't working, um, you need to have a think as to why that is. So this is sort of the differential of things I would work my way through. So is the line actually in? Um, well, it's a good position in x-ray. We've got a normal CVP, and when we bolus the push trust adrenaline, it works. So we're happy the line's in. How we got the drugs through the dead space? We've been running now for over an hour. Um, so yes, we're pretty happy the drugs are in and should be working. Is there dilution error? Double-checked all the drugs with the experienced ICU nurse who's made them up. So we're happy that the drugs are made up correctly. What about pH? Well, vasoactive drugs tend not to work so well if your patient's particularly acidotic. 
At 7.1, it's unlikely to be low enough to affect them. But if your back's against the wall, you might want to raise the pH up slightly. What about steroids? Well, a lot of these patients actually have what's called relative adrenal insufficiency. So it's not that their adrenal glands aren't making enough cortisol, because they're making more than normal. But the child just has that severe an insult that the increased amount of cortisol they're making is out of proportion to the severity of the insult that they're suffering. Um, so it's relative adrenal insufficiency. Um, when we tend to think about this is when you have a child on two vasoactive drugs and who's not responding to them. And if you give them some low-dose hydrocortisone, you can try and make up for this gap between what they're making and what they need. So by low-dose, I mean a milligram per kilogram, up to a max of 50 milligrams given four times a day. Um, and you're trying just to replace that with a low-dose. We know high-dose steroids in this setting are associated with increased mortality. Calcium, well, all the vasoactive drugs tend to work by increasing intracellular calcium. So if your calcium's low, as it is in this case, they're probably not going to work so well. And have we got the wrong drug choice? Well, we've worked through our algorithm. We're pretty happy with the, the choices we're making. Needs fluids rather than drugs. Actually, our patient needs both, and we're, we're on top of that. Um, and we're pretty happy. Have we got the wrong diagnosis? No, we're pretty, it's pretty obvious our patient's got meningococcal sepsis. But what starts off as meningococcal sepsis can be complicated by a mechanical cause of shock. And by that, I mean attention, pneumothorax, pericardial effusion, tamponade or abdominal compartment syndrome. So this is, we, we perform POCUS, we're quite happy none of these apply and the tummy's nice and soft. And again, just some of the differentials I would work through when maybe not such an obvious case of shock. So going on to progress, we give our patients some low-dose steroids, give them some calcium, give them some bicarb, and then go back and reassess. So the airway and breathing are unchanged. Um, from a circulatory point of view, we're now in adrenaline 0.5, um, NORAD 0.6 mics per kilo per minute. Um, heart rate's 190. Um, blood pressure's come up to 98, over 74. Um, capillary refill time is still prolonged at six seconds centrally. Child's still cool to the trunk. Peripheral pulses still aren't palpable. The CVP's come up to 18, but venous sats have stayed low at 36. Sedation's unchanged. And if we look at our gas, the pH has come up a little bit with the bicarb. We're still okay from a respiratory point of view, but our lactate hasn't cleared. Hemoglobin's come up with a top-up, and the calcium's come up with a top-up. So, what now? So this is the bit where you guys, this is the only interactive bit I've got on this. <laughs> Costas is gonna be a little bit braver than me later, and he's gonna have a much more interactive session, but. What do you want to do now? What's going on? What's, what's changed? Have you got the, has Rory got the microphone there? Or Costas has got it? I'll be really disappointed if nobody answers. Come on. Yeah, will you set up with the microphone? Is this okay? So it's hard for everybody to, to hear. Blood pressure is much higher, so maybe open up the pipes. Yeah, so we, we said about the, the blood pressure. It's quite, you've got quite a narrow blood pressure now, don't you? Um, and the reason for that is probably our patients on high doses of vasopressors, which weren't working before. We've now given them some calcium and given them some steroids, and now these high doses of vasopressors are, 
are actually working. Um, so our child has switched from one type of shock to another. Um, so we've now got actually high blood pressure, cold shock. Um, and that's what these children do. They literally swap from one type of shock to the next. So a treatment that you're given one minute, which is right, can be completely wrong the next minute. So we've now got a child that the high dose vasopressors, so the afterload is massively increased. And remember, we're not interested in blood pressure, we're interested in flow. So with the afterload increased, the vessels constricted, we're not getting enough flow out to the tissues. So we need to do something about that. And really you've got two options. In the guidance here, it would say you add in a ninodilator. Um, and there's, there's two different approaches here. I think one approach is when you create a problem with a treatment, you can either add in another treatment to fix that problem. That creates a problem, then you add in another treatment. Seems to be a kind of very popular strategy, this one. The other, the other approach you can do is see, can you take away some of the treatment that's giving you the problem? So we don't need the high dose of vasopressors, and I would recommend in this situation actually just bringing them down before adding in a, an inodilator. So that's what we do. We bring the adrenaline down to 0.2, the norad down to 0.3, and with that, the heart rate comes down to 172, the blood pressure to more appropriate levels. CVP um, comes down as there's more space for the amount of fluid that there is. Venous sats start to improve, lactate starts to clear, and the child starts to warm up to their to their knees and elbows. This stage, the retrieval team arrive and are delighted to find a patient in such good condition. <laughs> so what do I think are the key learning points from this case? I think the first thing is, please don't try and intubate these kids without a vasoactive drug in their circulation. So start peripheral adrenaline early and make sure it's reached the patient before you induce anesthesia. I think the goal, remember the goal with the vasoactive drugs, what you're trying to do is return the heart function to normal. You're not trying to make it beat excessively or make it beat excessively fast. And you're not trying to squeeze the afterload more than normal. You're trying to return it to normal. And what you need to do at any one minute is gonna be different from the next. So you need to constantly reassess your patient, decide what you need to do, and adjust the drugs depending on what you're trying to achieve. And please don't just keep turning the vasopressors up because that can make the child worse rather than better. Don't forget about calcium and steroids when your vasoactive drugs aren't working. They're the common two. Um, I would strongly recommend monitoring your lactate and venous sats as a marker response to treatment. I think if they're not improving with treatment, you need to have a think about what you're doing uh, and see why. Thank you.